0: A thousand miles up the Nile, Section Twenty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A thousand miles up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter Seven, Seut to Denderah, Part Two. At a point about ten miles below Denderah we saw some thousands of Fellahin at work amid clouds of sand upon the embankments of a new canal. They swarmed over the mounds like ants, and the continuous murmur of their voices came to us across the river like the humming of innumerable bees. Others, following the path along the bank, were pouring towards the spot in an unbroken stream. The Nile must here be nearly half a mile in breadth. But the engineers, in European dress, and the overseers, with long sticks in their hands, were plainly distinguishable by the help of a glass. The tents in which these officials were camping out during the progress of the work gleamed white among the palms by the riverside. Such scenes must have been common enough in the old days when a conquering pharaoh, returning from Libya or the land of Cush, set his captives to raise a dike, or excavate a lake, or quarry a mountain the Israelites building the massive walls of Pithom and Ramesses with bricks of their own making, must have presented exactly such a spectacle. That we were witnessing a case of forced labor could not be doubted. Those thousands yonder had most certainly been drafted off in gangs from hundreds of distant villages, and were but little better off for the time being than the captives of the ancient empire. In all cases of forced labor, under the present regime, however, It seems that the laborer is paid, though very insufficiently, for his unwilling toil, and that his captivity only lasts so long as the work for which he has been pressed remains in progress. In some cases the term of service is limited to three or four months, at the end of which time the men are supposed to be returned in barges towed by government steam-tugs. It too often happens, nevertheless, that the poor souls are left to get back how they can, And thus many a husband and father either perishes by the way, or is driven to take service in some village far from home. Meanwhile his wife and children, being scantily supported by the Sheikh el-Belid, fall into a condition of semi-serfdom, and his little patch of ground, left untilled through seed-time and harvest, passes after the next inundation into the hands of a stranger. But there is another side to this question of forced labor water must be had in Egypt, no matter at what cost. If the land is not sufficiently irrigated, the crops fail, and the nation starves. Now the frequent construction of canals has, from immemorial time, been reckoned among the first duties of an Egyptian ruler. But it is a duty which cannot be performed without the willing or unwilling cooperation of several thousand workmen." Those who are best acquainted with the character and temper of the phelum maintain the hopelessness of looking to him for voluntary labor of this description. Frugal, patient, easily contented as he is, no promise of wages, however high, would tempt him from his native village. What to him are the needs of a district six or seven hundred miles away? His own shadoof is enough for his own patch, and so long as he can raise his three little crops a year, neither he nor his family will starve. How, then, are these necessary public works to be carried out, unless by means of the corvée? M. Abou has put an ingenious summary of this other-side argument into the mouth of his ideal fella. "'It is not the emperor,' says Ahmed to the Frenchman, "'who causes the rain to descend upon your lands. It is the west wind, and the benefit thus conferred upon you exacts no penalty of manual labor.' but in Egypt, where the rain from heaven falls scarcely three times in the year, it is the prince who supplies its place to us by distributing the waters of the Nile. This can only be done by the work of men's hands, and it is therefore to the interest of all that the hands of all should be at his disposal. We regard it, I think, as an especial piece of good fortune, when we found ourselves becalmed the next day within three or four miles of Denderah. Abydos comes first in order according to the map, but then the temples lie seven or eight miles from the river, and as we happened just thereabouts to be making some ten miles an hour, we put off the excursion till our return. Here, however, the ruins lay comparatively near at hand, and in such a position that we could approach them from below and rejoin our dahabia a few miles higher up the river. So, leaving Rais Hassan to track against the current, we landed at the first convenient point and finding neither donkeys nor guides at hand took an escort of three or four sailors and set off on foot the way was long the day was hot and we had only the map to go by having climbed the steep bank and skirted an extensive palm grove we found ourselves in a country without paths or roads of any kind the soil squared off as usual like a gigantic chess-board was traversed by hundreds of tiny water-channels, between which we had to steer our course as best we could. Presently the last belt of palms was passed, the plain, green with young corn and level as a lake, widened out to the front of the mountains, and the temple, islanded in that sea of rippling emerald, rose up before us upon its platform of blackened mounds. It was still full two miles away, but it looked enormous, showing from this distance as a massive, low-browed, sharply defined mass of dead-white masonry. The walls sloped in slightly towards the top, and the façade appeared to be supported on eight square piers, with a large doorway in the center. If sculptured ornament or cornice or pictured legend enriched these walls, we were too far off to distinguish them. All looked strangely naked and solemn, more like a tomb than a temple. Nor was the surrounding scene less death-like in its solitude. Not a tree, not a hut, not a living form broke the green monotony of the plain. Behind the temple, but divided from it by a farther space of mounded ruins, those mountains, pinky, aerial, with sheeny sand-drifts heaped in the hollows of their bare buttresses, and spaces of soft blue shadow in their misty chasms. Where the range receded, a long vista of glittering desert opened to the Libyan horizon. Then as we drew nearer, coming by and by to a raised causeway which apparently connected the mounds with some point down by the river, the details of the temple gradually emerged into distinctness. We could now see the curve and under-shadow of the cornice and a small object in front of the façade, which looked at first like a monolithic altar, resolved itself into a massive gateway of the kind known as a single pylon. Nearer still, among some low, outlying mounds, we came upon fragments of sculptured capitals and mutilated statues half-buried in rank grass, upon a series of stagnant, neater tanks and deserted workshops, upon the telegraph poles and wires which here come striding along the edge of the desert, and vanish southward with messages for Nubia and the Sudan. Egypt is the land of Nidr. It is found wherever a crude brick mound is disturbed, or an antique stone structure demolished. The Nile mud is strongly impregnated with it, and in Nubia we used to find it lying in thick talc-like flakes upon the surface of rocks far above the present level of the inundation. These tanks at Dendera had been sunk, we were told, when the great temple was excavated by Abbas Pasha more than twenty years ago. The niter then found was utilized out of hand, washed and crystallized in the tanks, and converted into gunpowder in the adjacent workshops. The telegraph wires are more recent intruders, and the work of the Khedive, but one longed to put them out of sight, to pull down the gunpowder sheds, and to fill up the tanks with debris for what did the arts of modern warfare, or the wonders of modern science, to do with Hathor, the Lady of Beauty and the Western Shades, the Nurse of Horus, the Egyptian Aphrodite, to whom yonder mountain of wrought stone and all these wastes were sacred? We were by this time near enough to see that the square piers of the façade were neither square nor piers, but huge round columns with human-headed capitals, and that the walls, instead of being plain and tomb-like, were covered with an infinite multitude of sculptured figures. The pylon, rich with inscriptions and bas-reliefs, but disfigured by myriads of tiny wasps' nests, like clustered mud-bubbles, now towered high above our heads, and led to a walled avenue cut direct through the mounds and sloping downwards to the main entrance of the temple. Not, however, till we stood immediately under those ponderous columns, looking down upon the paved floor below, and up to the huge cornice that projected overhead like the crest of an impending wave, did we realize the immense proportions of the building. Lofty as it looked from a distance, we now found that it was only the interior that had been excavated, and that not more than two-thirds of its actual height were visible above the mounds. The level of the avenue was, indeed, at its lowest part, full twenty feet above that of the first great hall, and we had still a deep, temporary staircase to go down before reaching the original pavement. The effect of the portico as one stands at the top of the staircase is one of overwhelming majesty. Its breadth, its height, the massiveness of its parts exceed in grandeur all that one has been anticipating throughout the long two miles of approach. The immense girth of the columns, the huge screens which connect them, the ponderous cornice jutting overhead, confuse the imagination, and in the absence of given measurements appear perhaps even more enormous than they are. Looking up to the architrave, we see a kind of Egyptian panathenaic procession of carven priests and warriors, some with standards and some with musical instruments. The winged globe, depicted upon a gigantic scale in the curve of the cornice, seems to hover above the central doorway. Hieroglyphs, emblems, strange forms of kings and gods, cover every foot of wall-space, frieze, and pillar. Nor does this wealth of surface sculpture tend in any way to diminish the general effect of size. It would seem, on the contrary, as if complex decorations were, in this instance, the natural complement to the simplicity of form. Every group, every inscription, appears to be necessary and in its place, an essential part of the building it helps to adorn. Most of these details are as perfect as on the day when the last workman went his way, and the architect saw his design completed. Time has neither marred the surface of the stone, nor blunted the work of the chisel. Such injury as they have sustained is from the hand of man, and in no country has the hand of man achieved more and destroyed more than in Egypt. The Persians overthrew the masterpieces of the pharaohs. The Copts mutilated the temples of the Ptolemies and Caesars. The Arabs stripped the pyramids and carried Memphis away piecemeal. Here, at Dendera, we have an example of Greco-Egyptian work and early Christian fanaticism. Begun by Ptolemy the Eleventh, and bearing upon its latest ovals the name and style of Nero, the present building was still comparatively new when, in A.D. 379, the ancient religion was abolished by the Edict of Theodosius. It was then the most gorgeous, as well as the most recent, of all those larger temples built during the prosperous foreign rule of the last seven hundred years. It stood surrounded by groves of palm and acacia, within the precincts of a vast enclosure, the walls of which, one thousand feet in length, thirty-five feet high, and fifteen feet thick, are still traceable. A dromos, now buried under twenty feet of debris, led from the pylon to the portico. The pylon is there still, a partial ruin. But the temple, with its roof, its staircases, and its secret treasure crypts, is, in all essential respects, as perfect as on the day when its splendor was given over to the spoilers. One can easily imagine how those spoilers sacked and ravaged all before them how they desecrated the sacred places and cast down the statues of the goddess, and divided the treasures of the sanctuary. They did not, it is true, commit such wholesale destruction as the Persian invaders of nine hundred years before, but they were merciless iconoclasts, and hacked away the face of every figure within easy reach, both inside and outside the building. Among those which escaped, however, is the famous external bas-relief of Cleopatra on the back of the temple. This curious sculpture is now banked up with rubbish for its better preservation, and can no longer be seen by travelers. It was, however, admirably photographed some years ago by Signor Bietti, which photograph is faithfully reproduced in the annexed engraving. Cleopatra is here represented with a head-dress combining the attributes of three goddesses, namely the vulture of Maut, the head of which is modelled in a masterly way, the horned disc of Hathor, and the throne of Isis. The falling mass below the head-dress is intended to represent hair dressed according to the Egyptian fashion, in an infinite number of small plates, each finished off with an ornamental tag. The women of Egypt and Nubia wear their hair so to this day, and unplate it, I am sorry to say, not oftener than once in every eight or ten weeks. The Nubian girls fasten each separate tail with a lump of Nile mud daubed over with yellow ochre, but Queen Cleopatra's silken tresses were probably tipped with gilded wax or gum. It is difficult to know where decorative sculpture ends and portraiture begins in a work of this epoch. We cannot even be certain that a portrait was intended, though the introduction of the royal oval in which the name of Cleopatra Cleopatra, is spelt with its vowel sounds in full would seem to point that way. If it is a portrait, then large allowance must be made for conventional treatment. The fleshiness of the features and the intolerable simper are common to every head of the Ptolemaic period. The ear, too, is pattern-work, and the drawing of the figure is ludicrous. Mannerism apart, however, the face wants for neither individuality nor beauty. Cover the mouth, and you have an almost faultless profile. The chin and throat are also quite lovely, while the whole face, suggestive of cruelty, subtlety, and voluptuousness, carries with it an indefinable impression not only of portraiture but of lightness. It is not without something like a shock that one first sees the unsightly havoc wrought upon the hathor-headed columns of the façade at Dendera. The massive folds of headgear are there. The ears, erect and pointed like those of a heifer, are there. But of the benignant face of the goddess not a feature remains. Ampere, describing these columns in one of his earliest letters from Egypt, speaks of them as being still brilliant with colors that time had no power to efface. Time, however, must have been unusually busy during the thirty years that have gone by since then, for though we presently found several instances of painted bas-reliefs in the small inner chambers, I do not remember to have observed any remains of color, save here and there a faint trace of yellow ochre, on the external decorations. End of Section 20